This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and be turning again to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And we've already started looking at these verses. We want to begin looking at them, beginning in verse 1. Our text uh, goes through verse 11. I've entitled this section of Scripture, Dead to Sin, Alive to God. Picking up in verse 1, Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God." So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. As we began looking at this section, verses 1 through 11 last week, we noted the fact that the Apostle Paul is really a a master writer. He understands his audience. He understands sort of the conversations and topics of debate that are going on in the church of his day. And he understands that within the congregation at Rome, there would be some who would question or maybe even accuse him of of teaching this sort of understanding of the gospel where it could lead one to take advantage of God's grace. He has spoken, as you well know, about the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. Works cannot be added to faith, Paul says. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone according to the grace of God alone. But there was a statement that Paul made at the end of chapter 5 where he said in verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, and where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul understood there were people within the church that would take that statement and insist that Perhaps Paul's gospel led to the conclusion that a Christian, because he was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, could then live any way that he or she wanted to live. That in fact, maybe the law itself was a necessary evil to increase our sin, to give an opportunity for God's grace to abound. And Paul essentially is responding to that sort of antagonist, or that individual that might make that accusation against the Apostle Paul, it would have been people who were legalistic. It would have been people um, among um, 
the Jewish legalists within the church who simply believed that God's grace was too good to be true. How can this sovereign God forgive freely with no strings attached whatsoever? How can salvation be free of charge? That was foreign to the Jewish mindset, not foreign to the Old Testament, but foreign to the Jewish mindset because of their works-oriented religiosity. And so Paul imagines this critic sort of accusing him of being antinomian. That is, made up of two words, anti-against, nomia, law, against the law of God. Of course, it wasn't the antinomians, those who were truly against the law of God, that were charging Paul with being antinomian. It was the Jewish legalists because they disagreed with his gospel. They disagreed that salvation was purely based on the grace of God. They disagreed with the fact that God can simply declare someone righteous when in fact he's not righteous. That God can declare the ungodly righteous. Romans 4, 5. But Paul says that's exactly what God does. And while we're on that topic, it is not a license to sin. Paul essentially says, I'm not against the law of God. I'm not an antinomian. I do not believe that a Christian can live any way that they want to live. That is not what the gospel produces. And so he explains in verses 1 through 11 what the gospel produces. All of this, of course, is rooted in the doctrine of our union with Christ, highlighted by that expression, into Christ, with him, or in Christ. Notice in Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 8, now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So skip back to verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul repeats that phrase, in Christ, into Christ, with Christ, to establish the fact that That a true believer is now one with Christ, fully united to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most precious doctrine in all of Scripture because it helps explain the gospel. It helps explain the relationship between the first Adam and the human race being guilty in Adam and then the second Adam coming to reverse the curse of the first Adam, God's chosen race being found in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says in defining union with Christ, He says, to be in Christ means that all he has done for me representatively becomes mine actually. All that Christ has done for me representatively becomes mine actually. Years ago during a Latin American revolution, an American citizen was captured and sentenced to death, but an American officer rushed before the firing squad And he draped a large American flag over the victim, covering his entire body. And he said, if you shoot this man, you will fire through the American flag and incur the wrath of the most powerful nation in the world. The revolutionary in charge released the prisoner at once. And in the same way, 
Our union with Christ means that we are draped in the protection of Christ. We are one with Him. And the freedom that He won for us was won for us at the cross. So when He died, we died in Him. And when He was raised, we were raised with Him because He is our federal head. He is our federal representative. He is the head of the covenant. He did what the first Adam failed to do. He brought life. The first Adam brought death. And the day you eat of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And that is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve and all that came after them. Christ has secured for us salvation. He has enveloped us in Himself. We are intrinsically united to Him in a spiritual manner that protects us from the wrath of God. It protects us from the judgment of God. And it allows us to stand in grace permanently. But the question then becomes, as the beginning of verse 1 says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, how can we do that? If we have grateful hearts, if we have hearts full of thanksgiving, if we are people that celebrate thanksgiving as a holiday, rejoicing in the favor of God, how can we continue in sin? In fact, the opposite is true. You will be motivated to pursue godliness and holiness if you're a true Christian. When the wife of the missionary Adoniram Judson, one of my favorite missionaries in history, when his wife told him that a newspaper article likened him to some of the apostles, the article said that he was just like the apostles in the Bible, Judson replied, I don't want to be like them or any mere man. I want to be like Christ. I want to follow Him only, copy His teachings, drink in His Spirit, and place my feet in His footprints, all to be more like Christ. And that is what Paul is dealing with as we enter chapter 6. It's the subject of sanctification. The subject of sanctification. And what he does here is he provides for us five arguments that tell us we should not be antinomian, we shouldn't be against the law. We should be those who embrace the grace of God and thus embrace the law of God and seek to honor God in the way we live. Five arguments. We saw the first two last week and we touched on the third one. Let me just quickly review these for those that weren't here. First, Paul argues there exists an anomaly in living in sin if we have died to sin. We saw this in verses 1 and 2. Notice the text. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, Paul says, by no means. You could translate that God forbid. May it never be. Strong negative in the Greek. And then he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, he recognizes the finality of the reality that we have died to sin. You say, well, I wasn't there with Christ on the cross physically. Right. But you were there with him spiritually. In the same way that you were with Adam in the garden by the tree when he ate the fruit. This is how God works. You can't understand the Bible without understanding the concept of a covenant and having someone represent you. Paul says we cannot continue in sin because an anomaly or contradiction contradiction exists in living in sin if we have died to sin. And of course Paul has argued you have died to sin. So how can you live in it if you died to it? Secondly, he says in verses 3 through 5 that we can't be against the law of God. We can't say that holiness isn't important in the Christian life, not only because there exists an anomaly in living in sin if we've died to sin, but number two, because we share historically and personally in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is symbolized in our baptism. 
Notice verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, Paul says, are you denying your baptism? Your baptism was a public statement of your identity with the Lord Jesus Christ. That you identified not just with his death, that he died to remove the penalty of sin, but you have now recognized and acknowledged that you are united to his resurrection life. You've been set on a new course to walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation in Christ. You now live for His glory, you live for His honor, because you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you've been raised from the dead. You share historically and personally in the event of the cross, His burial and His resurrection. Are you going to deny your baptism? Because that's what you're doing when you say it doesn't matter how the Christian lives. That's what you're doing when you poo-poo the law of God. That's what you are doing when it says, oh God, forgive me for what I'm about to do. That is not the way the Christian lives. The Christian has been so changed. He is so identified with Christ. He recognizes his union with Christ as personal and historical and real. He belongs to God. He belongs to no other. He is a living sacrifice to God, Romans 12. And so he asks himself the question, how can I deny my baptism, which symbolizes the gospel? Baptism doesn't save. But baptism does symbolize the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is essentially saying, you share in the death of Christ, in the life of Christ, personally, historically, because you said you did when you were baptized. That was your identification with Christ. And it doesn't matter when you were baptized. It could be before you make a public profession of faith or after. The point is that that public sacrament testifies to the reality of the death and resurrection of Christ that if we embrace Christ by faith, then we have identified with Him. And the baptism is a picture of that. Death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Well, that then took us to the third argument. Paul says we shouldn't be antinomian or live against the law. Paul says, number three, because we've been saved from the tyranny of death in order to be saved from the tyranny of sin. Let me repeat that again. We've been saved from the tyranny of death in order to be saved from the tyranny of sin. Now, this is where you need to pay particular attention. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now these are the most controversial verses in this entire passage. But notice how Paul begins. He says, we know. What do we know? Well, Paul's saying, you know and understand, if you follow my argument thus far, that our old self was crucified with Christ. That is what Paul has been laboring to say throughout this passage. And because our old self was crucified with him, Paul would say in another place, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Christianity is not a makeover. Christianity is not a a covering of the old self with makeup or simply getting cleaned up. No, the old self there in verse 6 refers to the unregenerate man as a whole. In stark contrast to the entirely new man who is in Christ. Paul says that old self was crucified with Christ on the cross. Now there is the concept of dualism, which is a concept that the Christian has two natures, and this really pits the spiritual versus the physical. And if you fall into that trap of dualism, you're going to only emphasize spiritual things because you're going to think that you have a theology that only deals with the spiritual and with the head apart from the hands and the feet that actually obey God. That is what dualists teach, that we have two natures. Paul is not teaching dualism. He's saying the whole man in Adam was crucified in Christ. Our old self was crucified. This is a definitive act that the Apostle Paul is describing here. The old man is definitively dead. He would say to the Galatians, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have crucified the flesh. This is a fate accompli. Latin for something that has been accomplished and completely irreversible. It's similar language to what Paul uses in several of his other epistles. I'll just point out one that Paul says in Colossians 3, do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its evil practices. Notice the motivation is don't lie to one another seeing that you've already put off the old self with its practices. In other words, the old self is dead, verse 10 of Colossians 3, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The old self has been laid aside. You are an entirely new person, a divinely empowered project of being renewed into the image of Christ. And that's why Paul says, not only we know that our old self was crucified with him, but that happened, notice verse 6, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That is to say, you didn't just die with Christ on the cross to remove the penalty of sin. You died with Christ on the cross to remove the power of sin. That's why Jesus died for you. Not merely to save you from hell. Not merely to save you from judgment. But in order that, as verse 6 says, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, he's not talking about the fact that the physical body has a problem in and of itself with itself. He's just saying that the body manifests sinfulness. I give you an illustration of this, and I don't have to work that hard to give this illustration because I'll just plagiarize from the ministry of Jesus. He says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus is not speaking about literal parts of the body. He's saying you need to go to the extreme level of removing from your life 
anything that causes you to sin. And oftentimes you do sin with your body. So if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to steal, cut it off. If your feet are causing you to go places you shouldn't go, cut them off. Not literally, but spiritually. And the body is represented, the flesh represents our unredeemed humanness. If you flip with me to Romans chapter 8, Paul will mention this, uh, for example, in verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, notice this, to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we are still housed in mortal flesh. Verse 13, where if you live according to the flesh, your mortality, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is our mortal body. There is sin that is still existent in us because we have an unredeemed humanness. We've not been resurrected yet. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and he says in other places that you're not to um, associate with a prostitute. You're not to make yourself one with a prostitute because your body isn't your own. It's been bought with a price. This is why Paul says in Romans 12 that we are living sacrifices to God. This is why Paul says, for example, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I believe it is, Paul says that we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. There, there is this struggle with the unredeemed flesh. That's what I would prefer to call it. Paul says, it's my eager expectation, Philippians 1, and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And another point in his ministry, Paul said, I discipline my body so as not to become subservient to sin. He speaks in Philippians 3.21 about God who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So Paul recognized that apart from a resurrected body, we would carry about our unredeemed humanness. And as long as we did that, we would struggle with sin. He was honest about this. He said, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point is that God has not just sent Christ into the world to redeem us, that is our spirits or our souls. He has come to redeem the whole cosmos. He has come to redeem our physical bodies and to resurrect us. The new birth brings death to the end of the old self, but we still have the temporal flesh which we battle with until our glorification, and that's what Paul will bring up in Romans 7. In verse 6 of Romans 6, the body of sin could be referred to as our unredeemed humanness, our human weaknesses, our susceptibility to temptation and sin. Paul says, your old self has died, you're a new regenerated self, but you still have the weakness of flesh, 
The old nature is completely dead. The new nature is there, but it's got to deal with the unredeemed flesh, the body of sin. But the goal is that it be brought to nothing. See that in verse 6? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body is no longer conditioned and controlled by sin. You have a new nature. And God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, intends to bring that body of sin to nothing. Brought to nothing is katargeo in the Greek. It has the idea of, of being defeated or disabled, deprived of power. So get this picture. The old self is the old humanity in Adam. He died with Christ if you're a Christian. And eventually, death itself will be defeated. Satan's head will be fully crushed. You will be resurrected and glorified. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the promise of Revelation 21. And at that point, your body will be redeemed. You will be resurrected. Death and sin fully and finally defeated. So there's an already not tension here. Of course, Christ has secured victory over Satan and over sin at the cross. Of course, He has removed the penalty of sin from His people. But even now, He is removing the power of sin through sanctification so that the body of sin can be brought to nothing. So that it can be disabled and defeated. In fact, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is with the human body, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy. Katergeto, same Greek word used in Romans 6, that he might destroy, disable, defeat, deactivate the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is amazing. Because Paul is saying that we are out from under the tyranny or rule of sin. We've not just been legally transformed into a new person. We've been morally transformed, experientially transformed. The body of sin even now is being brought to nothing. And in the meantime, while we enjoy freedom from the penalty of sin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we enjoy freedom from the power of sin. Penalty of sin has been removed and also its power, Paul is saying in verse 6. In fact, just skip to verse 17 for a minute. Paul says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This isn't antinomianism, is it? This isn't anti-law living. Paul says, but thanks be to God, thanksgiving is the heart of every true Christian, that though we were once slaves of sin, but now our old self has died, we have actually become obedient from the heart, new motivation, new man, to the standard of teaching to which we've been committed. And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of what? Righteousness. And then Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul's going to get to those verses later. But in verse 6, he's setting it up and he's saying, Look, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. You experience death to sin through your identification with Christ. 
And now God is calling you and empowering you to a death to self through imitation of Christ. You've identified with him, now imitate him. That's what Paul's getting at in this discussion. So he says at the end of verse 6, so that, here's the point, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That means, verses 17 through 19, that we would be slaves of righteousness, which is another way of saying that we would be slaves of Christ. We've transferred our position from being under the master of sin, Satan, and death now to being life and righteousness in Christ. We seek to honor Him in how we live our lives, though not perfectly. So Jesus told His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up His cross and follow Me. Forever would save His life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? We're to pick up our cross and follow after Christ. We are to die to sin daily. Even as we live in the power of Christ daily, the further we move away from sin, the closer we grow to Christ. Because God has saved us from death. Not so that we could live in sin. Sin and Satan are no longer our masters. And that's what Paul then says in verse 7. Notice your Bible. For one who has died has been set free from sin. If you have died, if your old self died with Christ on the cross, you've been set free from sin. As Jesus said in John 12, 31, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And just as Satan lost a foothold on his power in this world, so too has he lost a foothold in the heart of the believer's life. This is not perfection, but it is a trajectory toward a new way of living because you are not your old self. The old nature is gone. You've been given a new nature. And really the only thing you're battling now is the world, the flesh, and the devil. You still have an unredeemed humanity, but you have all the power through the Holy Spirit that indwells you because of your union with Christ to live in a manner that accords, as Paul says later in this passage, to the teaching of which you've been committed. To the Word of God. So no longer do you live as a slave to sin and lawlessness, producing more lawlessness or antinomianism, but lawful living, godly living, Christ-honoring living. When I was in high school, there were bracelets that were being passed around. You probably remember this or heard of it, WWJD, what would Jesus do? W-D-J-D. What did Jesus do? That's the first question. What did Jesus do? On the cross, you personally, historically shared in his death and resurrection. Now you can ask the question, what would Jesus do? You must first identify with him through the gospel. You understand that you can do nothing to earn salvation. Salvation does not come by way of imitation of Christ. It comes by way of identification with Christ and what He has done on our behalf. But once you've identified with Him, you better bet your bottom dollar that God wants you to imitate Christ. Paul said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. To live in a manner of freedom. We've been set free from slavery so that the body of sin can be brought to nothing We are no longer slaves to sin. We have died and we've been set free from sin. So Paul says, we've been saved from the tyranny of death, not to live in sin. 
We've been saved from the tyranny of death in order to be saved from the tyranny of sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death, in order that we would be saved from the power of sin ruling over us. So how could we ever live contrary to that? It's completely against God's purposes. It's completely against the theology of the Bible. It's completely against every inkling that is in your new nature to want to live any way you want to live. That's true Christianity. But that takes us to a fourth argument Paul makes, and that's found in verses 8 and 9. A quicker one, he says, now that the ball is rolling and we have momentum, we can really understand what he's saying. He says, number four, death will never have jurisdiction over us again because of our life in Christ. That should motivate godliness. Notice verse 8. He says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If we have died with Christ. This isn't in question. It could be translated since we've died with Christ. That's been Paul's argument. Since we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now this isn't talking about just living with him in eternity. It's not just talking about what happens after the resurrection. Because Paul is already clear we're already living with him, right? When, when he died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised to walk in newness of life. So we're already living in him, in him and with him. But what he means in verse 8 is that we also will live with him. There, there is um, an eternal element to this. We're living with him now and nothing can change that. We're no longer under the domain of death because we're in Christ. We have died with Christ. Our death is certain. Because our death is certain, our life is certain. We also will live with Him. Verse 9. There's that phrase again. We know. Same way Paul began verse 6. We know. This is just natural for a Christian to understand once they're taught it, Paul's saying. We know. Intuitively. That Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And because that's true about him and you are in him, it's also true about you. Death no longer has power over you. You will never die again. Because he died once. Because he died and we're in him, we died. Because he was raised and we're in him, we were raised. Death no longer has dominion over him. So it no longer has dominion over us. He's enveloped us. He's covered us with His righteousness. So Paul says, I'm not teaching antinomianism. I'm not an antinomian and you shouldn't be an antinomian. Because first of all, there exists an anomaly or contradiction in living in sin if we've died to sin. How can you do that? Secondly, we share historically and personally in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is symbolized in our baptism. Was your baptism a farce? I mean, you you say that you've identified with him. Third, we've been saved from the tyranny of death, not to live in sin, but in order to be saved from the tyranny of sin. It's not just that death no longer reigns over us. Sin doesn't reign over us. And fourth, death will never have jurisdiction over us again because of our life in Christ. So if death can't have power over us, and it was sin that caused death, why are we tampering with sin? Why are we living in sin? Why are we not repenting from our sin? Why are we not broken because of our sin? You see, we, we dumb sin down, don't we? We dumb it down. We stretch the truth. We don't call that a lie. 
We slander others, we accuse others, and we say, well, it's justified because what I'm saying is true. We seek revenge and harbor bitterness because we say we were unjustly treated. We refuse to forgive others because how could anyone ever do that to me? All of that is so antithetical to the gospel. And what Paul is saying is that a true Christian will struggle with that. Will a Christian be tempted to do those things? Of course. But the only way out of that temptation and out of that struggle is not to work harder and do better. It's to remember your identity in Christ. This is not just positive thinking. This is not working up your carnality in a way that you're just striving and growing stronger in your own strength. This is simply by faith grasping what is historically and personally true about you. And that is that in a way you can't fully understand you were with Christ on the cross and your old self died with him and you were raised to walk in newness of life to look and to live like him. That is an amazing and powerful reality that leads to the fifth thing and that's what Paul's getting at fifth argument since God considers us alive not dead we should therefore acknowledge or consider ourselves dead to sin I mean first of all we shouldn't be antinomian because there exists an anomaly in living in sin if we've died to sin and also because we share personally and historically in the death and resurrection of Jesus symbolized in our baptism. And also, we've been saved from the tyranny of death in order to be saved from the tyranny of sin. And death will no longer have jurisdiction over us because of our life in Christ, so why are we tampering with sin? But fifth, since God Himself considers us alive, not dead, we too need to acknowledge and consider ourselves dead to sin. Notice verse 10. For the death He died to sin, for the death He died, He died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now when it says that Jesus died to sin, Jesus didn't have the same relationship to sin that you had. Jesus was never controlled by sin. Jesus never succumbed to sin. So what does it mean when Paul says he died to sin? If he wasn't a sinner, why did he die to it? Well, he didn't die to it in the same way you died to it. You died to it through him, vicariously. So he died vicariously in the place of his people. As the Reformed commentator John Murray puts it, because he was vicariously identified with sin, he was likewise identified with the wages of sin, which is death. He died to sin in that sense because you're a sinner. He stood in your place. And since his sacrifice, as verse 10 says, is once for all, the life he lives, he lives to God. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I can consider what is true about me as hard as it is to believe because God says it's true about me. God says I am a new creature. God says I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit. God says I'm no longer under the domain of death. God says that Christ accomplished everything for me as my representative. And as hard as that is for me to believe, God says it. So why am I not considering it to be true? Because when I do, it produces holiness. Does this not encourage you that 
Christ's sacrifice was once for all. That's the language of verse 10, isn't it? It's also language of the rest of the Bible. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself as a once for all sacrifice. Other Hebrews says in chapter 9, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's once for all. It's been done. God has made his declaration of your justification. He has made you a new creature. Why are you not considering this to be true? That's what Paul is getting at. It's once for all. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, author of Hebrews again, He'll appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Again, once for all. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. A once for all sacrifice. It's been done. For Christ also suffered, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, And verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus became like us in His suffering. He became like us in His temptation, in His incarnation, and being numbered with the transgressors so that we could become like Him. We could be counted righteous. We could live as He lives. And the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, that's why He's not ashamed to call us brothers because what he did he did for us he didn't do it for himself he didn't need to die for his own sin he died for our sins now here's the conclusion notice verse 11 so in light of all of this you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus this is the first time that Paul actually gives a command the previous 10 verses were all indicatives. That is to say, they were statements about what is true. What is true about you if you're in Christ? Paul's not given any commands. He's not told us to do anything. He has motivated the Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit and writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to understand that if you want to live a life of obedience to God, you must be focused on the gospel. You must be focused on your union with Christ. Not commands. It doesn't mean the commands aren't important, but which comes first? Paul gives the gospel indicatives first. But now, because in verses 12 and following, he's going to give a whole bunch of imperatives, a whole bunch of commands. He sets all of this up by saying, so here's how it begins. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is a command. He says you must consider. The word consider is logizomai. It means something like, this is my terminology, appreciate, acknowledge, meditate on. What is it that you need to meditate on? What is it you need to think about? What is it that you need to focus on in your struggle with temptation, your struggle with sin? It's that, notice verse 11, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
How do you consider that? You take God at his word. This isn't positive thinking. This isn't thinking harder. This is just reading God's word and taking it at face value, grasping by faith the reality that you're free from sin, slavery, and death. That's the way God views you. That's how you actually are, even when you don't feel that way. You're not enslaved to sin. Satan is not your master. And beloved, if you don't consider that, you will live a frustrating life because you were recreated for holiness. That's why so many Christians are depressed. The issue is sin. They are miserable because they are in sin. And God is letting them stay there until they repent. That's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God. Paul says this all begins with you considering. I mean, that's not much of a call to action, right? That's just considering what God has said is true about you. Acknowledge it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Recognize it. Believe it. Because Scripture says, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Prove that you are a true believer. Prove it. By your obedience, by your patience, by your love, by your forgiveness. When other people say bad things about you, you don't talk bad about them. When other people slander you, you don't slander them back. When other people falsely accuse, you don't point the finger. When you are mistreated, when you are diagnosed, when you are suffering, you don't accuse God of being unjust. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But, verse 13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's the greatest news ever. Paul's saying, I'm asking you to do one thing. It's to consider, acknowledge, or I like the old King James, reckon yourselves. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it's God who's at work in you. And when you have this sort of reckoning, this sort of consideration, you will have faith. The more you are reminded of the gospel, the more you are reminded of Christ's work for you at Calvary, the more you are reminded of your union with Christ. Even though you may not feel this morning like you're separated from sin, you may be so frustrated and disappointed in yourself, God views you as completely separate. Your old self is dead. You have a new identity. Paul's saying, so why not live that way in the power of the Holy Spirit? When you meditate on the gospel, when you're reminded of the gospel, when you're reminded of your union with Christ, that you've died to sin and you're alive to God in Christ, it produces faith. Faith in what? Let me give you just a few things and we'll be done. Number one, when you consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, it will give you faith. Faith not in self, but faith in the power of God to overcome sin. Therefore, There hath no temptation that has overtaken me, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I am able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape, so that I may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 This is not perfectionism. But when you consider your union with Christ, it gives you faith that by the power of God you can overcome sin. 
That's what 1 Corinthians 10.13 teaches. Number two, when you meditate on your union with Christ, it gives you faith that God will keep the promise He made, that He'll never lose you. In spite of your struggle with sin, you can never be lost because you've already been found and you're going to be kept. What does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. One of the greatest ways to be assured of your salvation is to not look at your own performance all the time. At some point, you have to consider and reckon and acknowledge that no matter what you do, no matter what sins you commit, you are accepted by God solely based upon what Christ did. And if someone wants to accuse me of being antinomian for that, I'll take the accusation. Paul was accused of that. If you are afraid as a Christian to speak boldly about the gospel, Bold enough to say you need to be reminded of the gospel constantly. If you're afraid to do that, you will fall into the trap of legalism. I would much rather be accused of two things. I'd rather people accuse me of being antinomian because I faithfully preach the gospel. And I would rather people accuse me of being Arminian because I'm evangelistic. You know why? Because I'm not Arminian, I'm not antinomian, but a true Calvinist who is evangelistic and loves the gospel will preach the gospel as if it is left up to him, even though he knows it's not. And a true Calvinist, someone who's truly reformed, isn't going to denigrate the law of God, but he understands the proper place of the law of God. Last time I checked, the sacraments are not an emblem of the law. What are they an emblem of? The Lord's Supper and baptism are emblems of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They're emblems of the gospel. You need reminded of that. What else is going to give you and free you from the anxiety of your own sin? If it's it's what you can do because you're doing better than the guy sitting next to you, that's legalism. That's not the gospel. And I would far rather our church be accused of being antinomian than of being legalistic. Because I'm I'm done. If it's a legalistic atmosphere, I'm done. That is the most damaging thing for a church. We're not antinomian. We love the law of God, and that's Paul's point. You've been freed from sin. You will seek to honor Christ. There's a third thing that meditating on union with Christ helps with. It provides faith that physical death is not the end. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you're in him, then you have life, life eternal. Because you died in Christ, you will live again. The doctrine of union with Christ teaches us that physical death is not the end. Fourth, um, meditating on the doctrine of union with Christ gives us faith that the sins of others against us can't ultimately thwart God's purposes. Of course, we know Romans 8.28. We're familiar with that. But really, Romans 8.28 is sort of a summary of, in a sense, all the Psalms. We read in Psalm chapter 41, By this I know that you delight in me, My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity 
and set me in your presence forever. What is that? That is confidence that God is protecting us, protecting his plan for us regardless of enemies. David says, Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous, he says. So many psalms that speak about God's protection of his people. Psalm 109 Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate. They attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise Him in the midst of the throng. For He stands at the right hand of the needy one to save Him from those who condemn His soul to death. Doctrine of union with Christ. Gives us faith even in the midst of our enemies. It also gives us faith that Godly living makes the likeness of Christ known to the world. That unity in the body of Christ reveals Christ to the world. Jesus was adamant about the importance of this, wasn't he? In John chapter 17, I know you're familiar with it. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's not a lot of that in the evangelical world today. Not a lot of unity. A lot of bickering, a lot of fighting, a lot of finger pointing. Why? Well, it's simple. Revenge, ambition, pride. Jesus says, by this, all men will know you are my disciples when you have love for one another. This is how the likeness of Jesus is presented to the world. And I'm not talking about compromising with Roman Catholics and compromising with people that are not Orthodox. The Reformed world is divided in a way that is absolutely frightening. And they call us the frozen chosen. There's two ways to be joined together, by ice or by fire. I would rather be melted together in Christ and be one that way and be filled with warmth and joy and faith. The bickering, the backbiting, the pride, the ambition, the revenge, all of that needs to be laid aside. That's the old self, right? That's the old self. We're new in Christ. When I was a kid, I used to go to San Antonio, Texas on a regular basis because that's where my mother grew up and that's where her family lived. And I always loved going to the Alamo because I've always been a lover of history. And at the Alamo there, next to the entrance, is an inscription. It says, um, James Butler Bonham, 
No picture of him exists. But this portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. Well, in the same way, there is no literal picture of Jesus that exists anywhere. But the likeness of the Son of God, who makes us free because of His death, is seen in the lives of true believers. Their love for one another, their love for the lost, their love for the world. That's true Christianity. But, Sometimes it's easier to live in the flesh. And when it's easier to do that, what do we need to do? Go back to Romans 6 and remind ourselves of verse 6. The body of sin is meant to be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's not who you are. So why give in to sin? Where's your faith in the gospel? Where's your faith in the status and identity that God has given you. Have you considered that? The more you consider it, the more holy you'll be. The more you focus on your performance and comparing yourself with others, the more prideful, the more self-righteous you will be, the less loving you will be, the less holy you will be. Because the gospel does not produce a harsh rigidness. It produces grace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That is working out your salvation with fear and trembling when those elements are present. Well, next week we will look at the imperatives because Paul is not afraid to give commands and neither should we. We should not be afraid of the law of God. We should not be afraid to tell others how they should live in accordance with Scripture, and encourage one another in these things. It's not good enough just to meditate on union with Christ. We have to, by the power of the Spirit, be disciplined to obey the Word of Almighty God. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.